tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from my blog, Unpickled, which chronicles the last six years of life after alcohol and what a life it has been. I thought sober living would make me boring, maybe lonely, but instead it's cracked open my world and connected me with an international realm of amazing men and women in recovery. Other bloggers, speakers, advocates, coaches, therapists, plus readers and listeners who are always so warm and gracious. It never ceases to amaze me how much we all have in common. And something cool is about to happen on our podcast today uh, because this guest is a really good example of that. In April 2013, Kate B. wrote her first blog post, thesoberjournalist.com, about the sobriety thing she was going to try out. And I happened to be one of the first readers who commented back to her, encouraging her to keep going and to, to stick with it. And that blog follows her first 18 months of recovery, after which she turned her efforts to a new project called The Sober School, a six-week online program for recovery. So Kate joins us today to share her story and tell us what prompted her to create this program and give us some good strategies. But mostly, I am just excited because after four years of cheering each other on through the internet, we are finally getting to speak to each other for real. So Kate, hello and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hello and well, thank you. It's so good to speak to you, Jean, after all this time. Um, I feel almost a little starstruck to talk to you at last. Oh, I feel the same way about you. That's so funny. <laughs> Um, you, when, when you were writing the sober journalist, you got some media attention during that time. I seem to recall, um, do you, do you remember what that was like when you started, started to really realize that your blog was helping people and making a difference? Yes, I think I was contacted completely out of the blue by a journalist who picked up on a blog I'd written about this idea of being an almost alcoholic, kind of being in the grey zone. And I spoke to her on the phone and then she quoted me and included a link to my article in uh, my blog in her article. And yes, I got the most incredible amount of traffic that day. And I just had 
email after email coming in from people who were saying, well, I really relate to what you're writing. And I, you know, I'd already had a bit of a sense of that because, as you know, the blogging community is very supportive and you find you see a lot of your story reflected in other people. But that was the first time I thought, my goodness, it isn't just me out there. Right. That is a powerful feeling. Well, we're going to talk more about that, but first I want you to take us back a little bit and just share with us your story, Kate, about how your relationship with alcohol unfolded and how you came to realize it needed changing. Mm. Well, I think like many people, I started drinking as a teenager. I was a very shy teenager, a little bit of a geek, and I felt that drinking somehow, it made me cooler and it made me feel more confident. You know, it just helped me be the person that I wished I could be more of the time. So uh, my kind of love affair with alcohol began then. And, you know, like many people, I went on to go to university and here in Britain, uh, if you're at university, when you're not studying, you're practically always drinking or mm-hmm. you're going out and living this very boozy lifestyle. It's a kind of training ground for problem drinking. And um, and then after that, I got a job as a journalist uh, working for the BBC. And so it was, it was quite a good job. It was um, reasonably well paid. And I all of a sudden found myself with um, a flat of my own, um, a fairly high disposable income because I didn't have any dependents. And I felt as if I was living the sex in the city lifestyle. You know, I was working with a group of people who really liked going out and partying quite hard. But quite quickly, I realized that the thing I really loved although I did like going out with people and drinking socially, I actually love, loved drinking on my own. And I, I think I knew straight away that, that that wasn't normal. I kept that quite well hidden. I would never have told anybody how much I drank on my own or how often I did that or how much I enjoyed that. So I think that was about, uh, I was trying to think, 2006, 2007, and I think it was around that point where I had, um, you know, a, some really bad drinking episodes that I thought, gosh, something is wrong here. And I started buying my first um, books about how to stop drinking, a few sober memoirs. Um, I think I bought Caroline Knapp's um, Drinking a Love Story. They're all the classic things that people do. And I decided that I would take myself to a an, an AA meeting and I, I went to that meeting and I listened to quite a dramatic kind of a, a real rock bottom story actually and although I met some lovely people there I walked out absolutely convinced that I didn't have a problem it was very clear in my mind that I was different I wasn't like them and it was almost as if that experience gave me the green light to carry on drinking for many, many years. Um, Because every time I worried about my drinking, I come back to the fact that 
hey, I wasn't as bad as, you know, the people I've met there. Hmm. So uh, my drinking kind of continued um, on uh, till about 2012 when I was really starting to get quite concerned about it again. And, and by that point, I'd built up a kind of small bookshelf of books about sobriety and <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about being slow to get the message. Um, I haven't met many normal drinkers who buy that many uh, books about alcohol. Um, and uh, yeah, I think in the, in the year leading up to me stopping drinking, I really was starting to feel quite desperate and quite worried. And I hated the way it was making me feel, but I was equally anxious about, you know, taking this step into the unknown and, and not drinking when all my friends seemed to drink and I had a social life that revolved around drinking. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, the climax for me was in um, what, January of 2013, when, I don't know if you have it where you are, um, but dry January is a quite a big thing in the UK now. Where people yeah, it's, not, it's not so much here in Canada and the US, but we hear about it from, from uh, folks that are doing it there. Yeah, I, I don't know why it's it's become a yeah much bigger thing here um, over the past sort of five ten years, and um, and all, all my friends had decided that they were going to do dry January, going to have a whole month off drinking, and I thought great, this is exactly what I need, and I thought you know what I'm going to get the month off to the best possible start, I'm going to go away at New Year, I'm going to go on a fitness boot camp, and I'm going to you know, work out, eat great food. I'm going to absolutely start 2013 with a bang. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> and so I, I spent like a, a week being chased around cold, rainy countryside in England by these former army officers who oh, were just so tough. And I came home uh, several pounds lighter, feeling like I was ready to crack this. And then within, oh, about five days, I, I just realized I couldn't do it. And I was suddenly, you know, drinking at home and doing all the hard work and the many hundreds of pounds I'd spent on this trip. And my excuse in the past had always been, well, I can't not drink because all my friends drink. And for once, they weren't drinking, you know, and it sort of really brought it home to me that I was telling myself a lot of lies and I had to go through the rest of that month pretending that I was also doing dry January when I totally wasn't. So it was a bit of a wake-up call and I kind of um, sort of drifted through the first few months of that year and then at, towards the end of March 2013, I must have just Googled something different you know, I used to Google things like, am I an alcoholic? How do you know if you need to stop drinking? All those, <laughs> all those things. I had about five key searches that I must have searched for a hundred times. And I obviously typed something slightly different into Google because, hey, presto, I landed on your Unpickle blog. Ah. And I had, it had never occurred to me in all that time never occurred to me that people might be writing blogs about sobriety, <laughs> which seems so stupid now. I, I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner. 
Um, but I read your blog from start to finish and the way you wrote and the things you said and the way you talked about how you felt about your drinking and I, I know you drank a lot at home so it wasn't exactly the same as my experience but there were so many things there that I thought gosh like we have a lot in common here and you'd stop drinking and you seem to be having a much better time without alcohol and it was it was like the kick I needed so a few days later, um, I realized that on April the 6th, it was going to be exactly six months before I turned 30. So I had six months left of my 20s. And it <laughs> just suddenly seemed like such a good time to do this. I didn't want to take this problem into another decade. And I, you know, whilst at that point, I couldn't possibly conceive celebrating my 30th birthday without alcohol but I thought well if I can do you know a bit of time before then maybe that will be possible so it, it all conspired to be the right moment and well four and a half years later I'm still going strong <laughs> that's amazing it gives me goosebumps to you know reading what I wrote when I was just I mean I wrote it to try and get myself going and then you were able to use it to get yourself going. And I didn't, when I was writing that, I wasn't thinking about anyone else. Like I wasn't, I wasn't writing wisdom. I was like, I was just kind of, um, I was just hanging on, you know, and it never occurred to me that that could happen. And I, of course now I know it does, but um, it yeah. just gives me goosebumps to think that, you know, well, I was just, you know, I was a little bit farther into my recovery by then. And I was, I was no longer hanging on by a thread, but that what I had written in the past without me even really knowing it was useful to someone else blows my mind. Yeah. And then by the same token, I'm sure you found this a lot as a, as um, a blogger and a writer yourself is that I think sometimes people think that the blogger is going to give the wisdom, you know, and then people comment on the wisdom, but I feel like the blogger just starts the conversation and then the wisdom can unfold in the comments that happen afterwards. So oftentimes some of the most pivotal, impactful, like truth bombs from my moments of recovery have come from just comments that people made or a quick little email that somebody sent. And, um, that those little things, our interactions change each other's lives. It's, that's just so powerful and beautiful to me. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Well, I mean, when I started writing my blog, inspired by your blog, I had, I never thought anyone would read it. In fact, part of me thought I'd probably just write a few posts and then not continue with it. So <laughs> it's, it's funny what happened. And what did happen? Um, so, yes, I decided that, I would write a blog because um, I was really I was really intrigued by seeing your journey and seeing it laid out like that. And being a journalist, I do quite like writing, and I like the idea of um, having somewhere, you know, to make sense of my thoughts and to also have some accountability. Even though, of course, when you first start a blog, you know, it's like one man and his dog that's reading it, really. Um, but 
yeah, I, I thought I would start the blog. And I don't know, I, I think I was very lucky, really. I um, I followed your blog and I followed some other great bloggers who were so kind and generous to me. And they followed me back and they shared, you know, little tips and um, book suggestions and things that I should be doing or why didn't you try this? And I felt um, all of a sudden as if, I kind of landed on my feet because I was suddenly part of a community. And in the past, whenever I'd attempted to do anything about my drinking, I'd always been so ashamed about it. I I hadn't spoken to anyone about it. Um, I'd done it completely on my own. And it was life-changing to have people kind of cheering you know, yeah, cheering me on and wishing me well and and to learn from their experience as well. Connections are so powerful, aren't they? Even virtual yeah. ones. Um, yeah. I had no idea. And especially, I think the more we drink, the more we isolate. So um, we, we start to devalue. I mean, you, alcohol really took you there right from the beginning. You wanted to drink alone. It, it, we just start putting all those walls up around us and and the power of yeah. connection really is yeah. amazing. Um, so tell me about when you quit drinking, Kate. Was connection the, and blogging, is that the only thing you did differently? Or what, what made it work? What was different about this time? Um, I, I started reading uh, a lot of books. Um, <laughs> a lot of the books that were sitting on my bookshelf, I'd never actually opened. Um, <laughs> It was. I'm still a little bit like that now. I'm great at buying books, terrible at reading them. Um, but I started um, doing things like I read um, Alan Carr's book, Jason Vale's book, and and they um, are talk. It's a lot of the work on um, messaging and what your beliefs are about alcohol, and that really challenged me and made me think outside the box a bit and I also went to an Alan Carr seminar um, an in-person workshop where some of that information was delivered over the course of a day and Mm, and that worked really well it was very intense um it was a long day I think they still run these seminars um but Again, one of the things I loved about it was meeting other people, other people who look really normal, look just like me, and um, having a chance to talk to them, and then having someone uh, communicate these ideas to you and answer your questions about it. Because whenever anyone is challenging you a little bit about what you believe alcohol does for you, you naturally have a bit of resistance and you have questions as well and and that seminar gave me the opportunity to to really ask those questions and 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 get them answered so were you nervous when you went to that seminar did you sit in your car for a few minutes and have to work your nerve up to go in did you watch other people going in or are you just really brave that way oh no I'm not brave at all um well the thing I should say is that I didn't just go to that seminar once. Um, the time that it clicked for me, which was shortly after I'd stopped drinking, that was actually the third time I'd gone. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Oh, I love that. Okay, I want to hear more about this. Wait, I want to hear this. Okay, so you did you did this seminar three times, and I love you for being honest about this because lots of our listeners can not only relate, but I know there's a lot of listeners that that are trying to get the nerve up to quit and are very frustrated that they can't. And so I know that what you just said, as much as I'm laughing at it, it's that's a that's a a me too. <laughs> I mean, I haven't done that in particular <laughs> seminar three times, but I mean, that's the part of me that understands that I'm laughing with you, not at you on that. So um, as we speak to, to those people that feel like they're on Groundhog Day and starting over and over and over again, tell me about your experience with each one of those. How did, how did the second time relate to the first and what, what was different the third time? Take me through some of that. Yeah, well, the first thing I should say is that the seminar is, if anyone's read um, uh, the Alan Carr book, uh, the, the Easy Way to Stop Drinking or Stop Drinking Now, there are several different versions of them. The seminar is essentially the book, not read out loud exactly, but the concepts in the book kind of delivered to an audience. And um, and yes, so I went three times and each time the content was exactly the same. It was actually delivered by the same person, which was a total fluke because I went twice to a session in Birmingham and once to London. So really like really funny how the world works like that. Um, so the content didn't change. The only thing that changed was me, of course. And I think with hindsight, which is so wonderful, so revealing, um, the first time I went, I wasn't truly, I wasn't truly ready to stop drinking, nor did I really want to. I was looking for some kind of magic fix. I didn't want to do any work. I just kind of wanted to either be magically cured or to preferably find some way of moderating my alcohol intake. So I sat through the whole seminar being quite critical, thinking, who is this guy? You know, he's so different from me. How can he say that? You know, his life isn't like my life. Kind of really being quite negative. And I watched some people leave the seminar that day and they were practically dancing on the ceiling. It had just clicked. They'd had this total mindset shift about it all. They were, you know so happy and I didn't feel like that and I remember you know getting the train home and really struggling to even recall what we talked about and how it all fitted together and I you know I I just could kind of feel it slipping away Um, but the second time I went it started to click a bit more and you know I was very remorseful that time I remember crying in the seminar which is, you know, very embarrassing for someone like, for someone as uptight as me, who kind of, you know, likes to have a bit of a mask. And, um, but the third time I went, a bit of time had passed and yes, I'd started writing the blog. I'd had what, I didn't know them, but it had, you know, I had, I'd had my last drink. I was in a much better place. And I went there just so open to all these ideas and and I think perhaps most importantly rather than focusing on what I thought I might be missing out on by going alcohol free 
I'd started to realize that I was missing out on much more by drinking. Like I was sort of robbing myself of a lifestyle that I wanted. And, and that was quite a mindset shift for me. Um, and, and yeah, that colored everything really. Um, which I, I, I know it's frustrating to hear when you are struggling and you feel that you're trying really hard, but you do have to keep going because the, the chances are it is just a little tweak. It is a little mindset shift. And, you know, the, the more you try and the more you work at this, the closer you get to that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that you, I mean, you heard the same material presented three times. And um, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? I mean, you, yeah. until you were really ready to make a significant shift, it, it couldn't come from an external force, which which makes me wonder when you went to that very first AA meeting years earlier, um, if you had heard a story that had resonated with you more, um, you know, when you were talking about that, I was kind of thinking, oh, gosh, that's too bad that hearing something like that, you know, that you couldn't connect with, give you a reason mm-hmm. to drink for longer. But it also makes me wonder if you had heard something that did resonate, if you would have warped it in your mind to not. I mean, it makes me wonder if you heard that very same speaker again today, you'd probably be nodding your head and saying, yeah, I hear it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you could probably, it wouldn't be wrong to say that I probably went to that meeting looking looking to come away like that. I wanted to hear from people who reassured me that, you know, I was different. I was special. You were okay. You were okay. Yeah. Yeah. So given all that and and knowing that, you know, people can be, um, uh, hard to help if they're not ready. Um, you went on to create a six-week online program for people. So tell me about that, the Sober School. How did that come about? Yeah, um, so I, I had the idea for the Sober School probably about six or nine months after I'd stopped drinking. I was starting to do some work on some other areas of my life that weren't going so well. And one of those areas was um, my job. I I had what sounded like a great job on paper. It was a job I'd always wanted to do ever since I was a little girl, but it wasn't kind of fulfilling my expectations. And and that had been a big trigger for me to drink. So Mm -hmm. I joined an online career coaching course um, and it was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a, like a big group of people all started this course at the same time. And we were going through certain exercises um, sort of led by a course tutor. And we were set off with little tasks to do. And I, was, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, you know, the camaraderie between other people, the sense of not being alone, having a structure to follow. And that was the first time I thought, wow, it would have been so amazing if there was something like this for, you know, for me back when I was looking for help and, and kind of struggling to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of planted the seed in my mind. But I think it was another, at least another year before I followed through on, the, on, on that by thinking, oh, yes, and maybe I could be the person who created that 
that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I sort of sat on the idea for ages and ages um, before eventually deciding to make a go of it. And, you know, it was all really based on a gut feeling that I had from writing my old blog and hearing from so many people who sounded just like me and who were saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get started. You know, and I, I feel, feel alone with this. So I am, um, it took me months and months to do. It was just a project that I put together in my spare time in between work and other commitments, but I put together this, six-week program that guides people through early sobriety and so it's a mixture of practical tips and advice and suggestions for what to do combined with some of the sort of logical work you need to go through and the the thought processes about what you're why you're drinking what you think alcohol does for you and so it gives people a framework. It gives people, um, you know, a step-by-step plan to follow, and they are doing it at the same time as lots of other people. So, you know, they're not alone. So, did you put your journalistic research skills to work to create this program and really look into what works and why it works and how it works? How did you How did you sort of create the basis of it? Yeah, absolutely. I so I researched um, a lot about addiction and I um, I ran a couple of pilot programs with small groups of people asking them you know what kind of support did they need what help did they want and eventually compiled kind of the best of using a combination of blogs that I'd written, um, articles that I'd seen elsewhere, little bits from the Jason Vale and the Alan Carr book. I mean, I tell everyone to go and read those books. Mm-hmm. And over the course of what's almost two years now, the program has changed and changed based on feedback I've had from people and the resources that's worked for them to compile a sort of yeah kind of a starting off point really it's you know six weeks of getting you started and helping you helping you get started with stopping drinking so it it would be a program for someone that's either gearing up to quit drinking or, or in early sobriety or both it's really aimed at people who are gearing up to stopping drinking I do occasionally have people who are much further down the line and are perhaps going through a, a bad patch and, you know, want to go through this kind of material as a reminder of, of why they're doing it and just to help them navigate a, a particular time in their life. But most people are just starting out and most people have their day one is on day one of the course. So we have a mixture of people do the course. Some people are really only interested in taking a break like they want to stop for six weeks that's it other people arrive and they are in the place you know that I guess I was when I started writing my blog they are kind of just at that perfect moment where they're ready to hear the message you know I've got other people who have been through the course 
um, you know, two or three times and then it like clicks on the third time because. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And you, you completely understand that process. Cause, cause yeah. You know that it, I wonder too, I think, I mean, there, there are a number of programs out there and um, it, I think it's really great that there's such a variety developing. And also, um, I know for me, every year around my anniversary, which is in my, my sobriety anniversary, which is March 20th, every year around spring, I start to feel wobbly. Like, I, I get this little, like, ah, this is forever moment. And I'm really good at the day-to-day, and I really don't ever want to drink again. Like, I love my life without alcohol in it. But for some reason, that annual, um, you know, milestone makes me wobble. And um, it occurs to me that's probably when I should be signing up for a course and just reinforcing the basics every year and just rethinking Um, it. Yeah, maybe. Um, You know, I think sometimes anniversaries make us suddenly think a very long way into the future. And, you know, the concept of not of changing any kind of behavior forever or stopping something forever. That's very overwhelming. I mean, if you told me, you know, I could never ever eat carrots again, and I don't really like carrots all that much, I'd probably find some way to feel freaked out or a bit deprived <laughs> by that. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think anniversaries are a funny time, actually. Um, they're, yeah. like, they're a time to celebrate, but also a... Yeah, an odd time for sure. Yeah, they make us wobble. Well, let's talk a little bit of some of the core beliefs that you infused into the program. So tell me about some of those. I mean, do you believe in abstinence only and um, going cold turkey into abstinence? Or what are sort of the pillars that you base this on? Mm, I do believe in abstinence only. I mean, my um, kind of belief behind the course is that this is something for you if you have been trying to cut down for ages and ages and it isn't working and um, it's not really about how much you drink it's about how your drinking makes you feel so if you're repeatedly drinking more than you intend to and it is making you miserable then you don't really need to fill out any online questionnaires or do any late night Google searches, you've kind of got the information you need there about your relationship. And so I do encourage people to come along, take a break from alcohol, a complete break, you know, throw yourself into it. Um, Try as hard as you can to, to stick the course and really put some space between you and your last drink. And then at the end of the six weeks, you know, you've had six weeks of working on your sobriety, showing up for a program every day, engaging with a community, following a plan, educating yourself about alcohol, challenging some of your beliefs, opening your mind to some new ideas. After six weeks of that, you can then get to the end and decide what you do next. And, you know, if you've given it your all, you you. you you've given it your best shot and at the end you think hey on balance I think I was happier before then that's okay um what I don't encourage people to do is to go back to moderating because I've never ever ever 
heard of anyone who's made that work long term. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have to agree. I feel like it's kind of keeping a loaded gun in your pocket. Um, I get the I get the emails um, to prove it. I really want to believe that moderation works for people. I mean, the alcoholic in me wants to think that. Um, and I, I use air quotes when I say the word alcoholic. I'm speaking in the vernacular, <laughs> I guess, using that word. But yeah. um, I I really I see the evidence um, of people who want to try to moderate, and it just it. It, it really doesn't work out for them, and that's really devastating. Um, mm. I, I, abstinence is easier, is what I tell people. It's easier to have none than some. Um, it's easier for me, anyway, to have no potato chips than one potato chip, or no peanuts than one peanut. I mean, you know, I just, I, I just don't understand how um, our brains work sometimes, but. Somehow, yeah. just making the decision, it's a decision you make once and stick with. And I feel like moderation is a chain reaction of decisions that's just so hard for people. Yes, I, I agree. And, and I, I, the big problem I see with moderation is that by keeping a little bit of it in your life, you're kind of constantly telling yourself that that, that is better you're not really giving yourself the opportunity to see what alcohol-free living is like. You're kind of reinforcing the belief that a life without alcohol is somehow a life of less. Um, right. and, and actually, when you just look at the facts, it is really hard to control a mind-altering drug, you know, one that's very addictive and one that weakens your willpower. It, it is so hard to control that. And people sometimes say to me, well, why is it that some people can control their drinking? And my theory is this. I think so-called moderate drinkers actually fall into one of two camps. Some of them, I think, are genuine take-it-or-leave-it drinkers. They're like my grandma used to be, you know, have a drink every now and then, but doesn't really like feeling drunk, doesn't really have a taste for alcohol, just doesn't have that relationship with it you know they feel about alcohol the same way that I feel about you know pizza like I like a pizza Mm -hmm. but I don't have obsessive thoughts about it I think those are some people and then I think there are lots and lots and lots of other people out there who make a big show of being moderate drinkers but actually if you rock up to an airport early in the morning or you go onto a beach on holiday those are the people you'll see drinking very heavily when they're in an environment where heavy drinking is okay, but they've just got something in their life that is controlling their drinking right now. Maybe it's, you know, a, a job that involves them driving or some childcare commitments that they just cannot not show up for. You know, they've got those little barriers around their drinking, but really they are so close to, to being like, you know, like I was, like you were, like so many other people are, where you just find yourself suddenly without this off switch. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, there's so much shame around not being able to supposedly control your drinking, but I just feel we, we don't, we don't, you know, criticize smokers for getting addicted to cigarettes, do we? We just accept it's a, an addictive drug. And I think alcohol is so similar. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And listeners of this show have probably heard me say it before, but 
um, we all think, well, I just wish I could be a normal drinker, but alcohol is addictive. So getting addicted to it is normal. If you're addicted, you are a normal drinker. Anyone that's drinking it and not getting addicted is not following the normal reaction to mm-hmm. having alcohol in their life. And we understand if you smoke, you're going to get addicted to cigarettes. If you use hard drugs or opiates, you are very likely vulnerable to addiction with those things. But for some reason, probably commerce, <laughs> we have been brainwashed to think that we should be able to, um, and that somehow that it involves strength of character or something, that we should be able to, you know, dally with this um, or dabble with this addictive substance without incident. And um, yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you 100%. So tell me some of the major hurdles that you um see people commonly having in with making this change what are some of the things that people bump up against and how do you suggest they get over those yeah um so i think uh one of the problems that people have is not having any alternative coping mechanisms so they relied on alcohol for a long time to to serve a function and you know maybe it's a stress reliever, maybe it makes you happy, maybe you feel it, um, you know, it brings you and your partner together, something you do together. Um, You know, alcohol can serve, it can play all kinds of roles in our lives. And I think that sometimes what people do is they decide, okay, I've I've got to stop drinking, so I'm going to cut out alcohol, but that's it. You know, I'm not going to change anything else. I'm not going to think about what what I'm using alcohol for and when you do that the problem is in no time at all you will bump up against something like stress and if you haven't got a plan for dealing with it in another way then you're going to really feel deprived you're going to be relying solely on willpower and feeling if some as if something's missing so I strongly recommend that if somebody is thinking about stopping drinking they get really clear on what they are using alcohol for and then come up with some, you know, alternative strategies. So, you know, if alcohol is a stress reliever for you, I'd suggest getting really clear on um, the circumstances in which you drink. Like, for example, a lot of people think that alcohol is the only thing that relaxes them and they overlook the fact that, They also happen to have that drink at one o'clock time when they've come home, they're in a relaxing environment, they changed into comfy clothes, they've left the office behind. So, you know, think about all the other things you do and you know you like to do that relax you. Um, I I don't know if that was the main reason you drank. Uh, Was it it for stress? And have you found that... um, finding alternative coping mechanisms has been a big sort of part of your recovery. Oh yeah, that was a big aha moment for me when what I realized was it was I couldn't tolerate any kind of discomfort. Um and I it probably started as a sleep aid and as an anxiety aid for me. And um and mm-hmm. yeah, I was so I was kind of self medicating, I think. And then it just, it I, I, you just get blinders on. I, I didn't know how to celebrate. 
a good mood without it. I didn't know how to commiserate a bad day without it. And and now I have a million things um, to choose from besides alcohol, to yeah. and including uh, changing my life so that some of those stressors aren't so much anymore. You know, one thing I used to do was a ton of um, work-related public appearances and fancy dinners. And, you know, I, when I really got honest and thought about it, I was drinking a little before those events and a lot after them. And I hate walking into a crowded room. Um, it's not even so bad walking into a room full of strangers. I hate walking into a room full of people I know and trying to figure out who I'm supposed to talk to or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, social anxiety, I guess. And it, it was an epiphany to me that, you know what, I could just stop going to those things. There's other yeah. things. Yeah, there absolutely. was other ways for me to do my job without feeling the pressure to show up at every event, um, whether I wanted to or not. And yeah. so I just bit by bit started changing my life too. On top of that, learn new comforts, and change your life. So one thing yeah. I often say to people that reach out and are struggling um, is first get sobriety under your belt and then work on recovery. So when you hear me say that, what does that mean to you? Hmm. I'm not so sure. So do you mean, first of all, focus on actually getting the alcohol out of your life and then focus on, you know, building a, a sort of successful life in recovery and in exactly. you know, working on yourself and changing those things that you just mentioned, really. Yeah, that's exactly it. Things, yeah. yeah, the triggers. Because as you said, you that's the problem with moderation, trying to moderate is that it takes up brain space that you could be using to instead work on the why you drink and what you could do instead and so it's really hard to heal and improve yourself if you keep numbing yourself right Uh, Um, yeah yeah it gives us a presence of mind to really fearlessly um, tackle the the untruths that we've come to believe that are really limiting us yes yes we get so stuck in a rut where we have, you know, Tony Robbins talks a lot about having the right story, you know, and if you, if your story is that, you know, you can't lose weight because you're big boned and, you know, you, you probably aren't going to lose weight. And it's the same with us, I think, you know, if your story is that you can't possibly stop drinking because you've got all these public events to go to, that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually, I don't know how you feel about those events now, but I had similar fears around, um, yes, socializing, speaking in public, doing those kind of things where I normally relied on a drink to get me through. And what I found, to my surprise, is that I am actually a little bit better at doing those things than I thought. And that's because I had this story ingrained in my head from when I was a teenager, when I genuinely was rubbish at talking to boys, um, making conversation and all those things, uh-huh. yeah. I sort of overlooked the fact that in the intervening years, I had got a little bit more sociable, even though I'm a natural in- introvert. You know, so it's just a reminder not to get stuck in the same 
in the same story and telling yourself the same thing when you might well have changed. Oh, that's a great point. And yeah, I don't think you want to limit yourself in that. And you're right, because there's a lot of the healing that I've done, um, getting over the perfectionism and the fear of criticism and the feeling that I had to really, Brene Brown says, hustle for my worthiness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's hard to do when you're always terrified of not doing the right thing and thinking that somehow it's going to really ruin your life if you don't. Um, once I started to heal that, it, you're right, I do find it easier to approach a crowd or to to know that I can just blend in. Like People really aren't paying that much attention to me or anyone um, they don't really care whether or not I'm drinking. They don't really care who it is I approach when I walk in the room. And the fact is the people that love us are glad we're there, period. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. it, I really, I had a long way to go after I quit drinking before any of that came clear to me and it, that I really felt it, felt it on a level that felt true. Um, mm-hmm. And thank God. Oh, my gosh. I just saw someone this weekend who I met her shortly after I got sober, and um, she's also sober, so we kind of talk recovery. And she was just saying she sees a remarkable difference in me. So even though I didn't know her in my work capacity, she just could see the pressure that I put on myself to always be perfect and aloof and above and and that that has just melted away and – um, wow! Thank God! Thank God! I don't, it's exhausting. I feel tense just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I know what you mean. I um just going back to my old blog for a second. I think the tagline for that sober journalist blog was a blog about quietly getting sober, yeah. which is so indicative of how I operated back then. Like everything I did was about staying under the radar, fitting in, you know, being one of the crowd, not standing out. And Mm -hmm. when you think about it, sobriety, even today, it does make you stand out a little bit. You have to go against the grain. Mm -hmm. And and that was one of the things I really hated about it at first. But now I realize that that one decision has led on to so many other good decisions it was like it gave me a bit of confidence to be a bit different and to you know start standing up for myself and not always trying to fit in all the time and so yeah people have said to me that like oh you're so brave for you know doing this that and the other and for putting your picture on your website and all that kind of stuff and I think well this feels like the right thing to do And it's just been Mm -hmm. a series of small steps that were all triggered by stopping drinking. Like the repercussions of that one decision have been immense. So let's talk for a minute about the culture around recovery in the UK, which is where you are. I'm in Canada. Um, In North America, recovery is becoming increasingly accepted. People are becoming more open about it or they're understanding that they have a freedom of whether or not to be anonymous um, depending on the program that they're in but there's sort of a movement called the new recovery advocacy that's starting to really shift things I've had guests from Australia who feel that um, it's not mainstream enough there yet at all and that there's there's a 
a lot of pressure to drink and a lot of negativity around recovery. What do you find in the UK? What's the culture like there? Mm, I think we have a lot in common with Australia, actually. Um, yeah, we do still have a very heavy drink culture. Um, you, it's still very cheap to buy alcohol. It is still what most of our socializing revolves around. It is still cool to drink and it is a little bit uncool not not to do so, to be sober. I think things are getting a bit better. Um, I think the rising popularity of things like dry January, um, sober October, dry July. I hear, you know, I hear people, my my friends and family who aren't so, you know, tied up in all of this. I hear them talking about that a bit more. It does seem a little bit more normal. But, yeah, we have got such a long way to go. Um, I mean, I feel reassured when I, I've been, I've read a couple of articles recently about your younger generations of you know, 18, 19-year-old younger drinkers, how um, they are drinking less. We had some uh, statistics out recently, some UK-wide stats that showed that yeah, the lowest numbers of young people are drinking now, lower than ever before. But the problem is massively with people who are kind of late 30s, 40s, 50s. That's mm. where that older culture still exists. So, yeah, progress. But, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to um, experience a bit more of the culture around this in America. It seems seems like they're way ahead of the times. Well, you better come visit us then. (laughs) I'll I'll send you some events that you could come and join us for. Um, We only have a few minutes left, so a couple last questions for you. Do you believe that um, getting support for recovery online uh, in and of itself is enough, or do you think it's important to supplement with sort of real-life connections as well? Yeah, and I think um, it is great to have some real-life connections. If you have, it can. It's very easy to disappear online. I, I think that is a, a problem that we need to acknowledge. You know, you can duck out of a Facebook group or an online course. You can pack up your blog and never post again. It is great to have some real-life accountability if you've got that. But if you haven't. If you really have no one in your life who you feel you can talk to or who is supportive, then I think online communities are a great place to start. So mm-hmm. I'd recommend a bit of both. And for me, I would uh, maybe in maybe a year into my recovery before I really started having very honest conversations about my drinking with my friends and family. And it was so good when I finally did because I'd spent all that time worrying about what they'd say. And actually, they were really supportive and really welcoming. I'm smiling as you say that because I had the same experience. I I was like this little fraidy cat, you know, anonymous and, and like so worried what people would think. And then the first time I talked to somebody, I still feel bubbly when I think about it. It just lit me on fire. And I knew, okay, I, I need sober friends. I've got to find sober friends. I want to talk to people all the time about this. <laughs> it is it is really great. So uh, I know it's not a, it's easier said than done sometimes, but um, thank God for the internet. I think it's 
it, 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 at least it's the thin edge of the wedge that gets us started and helps us make those connections. Um, yeah. I'm, I think that people are making the change earlier in their addiction trajectory um, because of the internet and that could have enormous consequences too. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I, we could keep talking for hours, but I just have time for one last question for you. And tell us what are some of the things that you do every day to support your own recovery? Yeah, great question. I um, so I focus on trying to get enough sleep. Um, I am the kind of person who does need sleep, but I'm also very good at trying to hack the edges of my life and feel like I'm beating the system by cutting down my sleep. And it always ends in disaster. It makes me irritable, emotional. Ugh, it's just not good for me. So I really focus on getting enough rest. I focus on trying to eat proper food, you know, healthy, nutritious food, um, like plenty of protein and vegetables and staying hydrated um, when I was in early sobriety, I was always felt much more prone to drinking if I was ever dehydrated and let myself get that way. And a really, really big part of my recovery from day one has been exercise. Um, it makes me feel so good. Um, all those endorphins give me a boost. But most importantly, it seems to replace something that I look for in alcohol, I used to love drinking because I felt that it switched off my brain. You know, it pulled the shutters down and helped me kind of take some time out. And I have found that going to exercise classes, particularly ones where you really have to concentrate on what you're doing, maybe I do a really good one that's kind of a cross between circuit training and like dance aerobics. I have to concentrate the whole time. I can go in for an hour of that and come out the other side and think, wow, what was I thinking about when I went in? It's <laughs> like a, a little break for my brain. So that's been a very important part and a key way for me to kind of manage stress and manage my thoughts when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Kate B., thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being on the Bubble Hour. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I have listened to the Bubble Hour since the day I stopped drinking. It was like the first podcast I discovered. And yeah, it's so nice to chat to you after all these years. <laughs> me too. I'm delighted. And um, I wish it was a four-hour episode, but we will just have to have you back. And now I'm going to work on getting you over to... Uh, visit an event or have something over here so that we can meet in person. Um, that. that sounds good. Uh, listeners, if you would like to see the lovely smiling face that goes along with this gorgeous voice, you can learn more about Kate B at thesoberschool.com. Uh, you'll also find links there to her blog and um, her program, and there's great resources there. It's a really beautiful website. So uh, I encourage you to spend some time there today. And if uh, you heard something today that really resonates with you, you are able to contact Kate through that site as well. Again, that's thesoberschool.com. Com. I'm Jean. You're listening to the Bubble Hour. If you have any questions or comments for me, you can reach me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. And you can read my blog at unpickledblog.com. So that's all for us for today. So everyone, until next time, 
Take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. You in there, and the one who matters most can always. 